Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Young adult novels are having a moment. These books may be aimed at 12 to 18-year-olds, but adults are devouring them. Publishers are making big money on properties like the Twilight series and the Hunger Games and creating new pop culture juggernauts. Like many of those juggernauts, James Brandon's fiction debut, Ziggy, Stardust, and Me, captures the angst of being an adolescent. But unlike those works, it doesn't depend on vampires or a dystopian future to create new worlds. Instead, it paints with vivid detail the St. Louis suburbs in the spring and summer of 1973. Soul Train was on TV, Jonathan Livingston Siegel was being discussed in the classroom, and David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust persona presented a way for a shy kid to deal with just how strange he felt as a boy attracted to other boys in a world that only accepted heterosexual norms. So here to discuss his new book, Ziggy, Stardust, and Me, is James Brandon. James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Did you experience growing up gay in the St. Louis suburbs in the 1970s and 80s? What got you through that experience? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, James Brandon, your novel is set in Crevecore, and the details are so specific. Mm-hmm. Is this drawing from your own life? Yes, it is. Did so, you grow up in, in Crevecore? Yeah, I did. So, well, I was I started the first part of my childhood in St. Charles. And then we moved to Creefcore in fourth grade. And you yeah. seem way too young to have grown up in the early 70s. I, There's not well, a chance. <laughs> I love that. I was born in 77. So, yes, I was more of a child of the 80s. But, yeah, no, but I did intense research. So what get... led you to set your book then in the summer of 1973? So I found out about this time in history. Um, basically, on December 15, 1973, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, officially removed homosexuality from the DSM, the big book of mental illnesses that all the practitioners follow. This was something I knew nothing about. And I started to realize how I know nothing about my queer history. And I know that queer history is not taught in schools, Mm -hmm. right? And for me, this was my passion. This was something that because I've been out for over half my life and did not know about this at all, I was embarrassed about it. And I thought, how can I expect other people to know our community if I don't even know where I came from in my community, right? And so it became a big kind of passion for me to write about, that was the seed of the story, to write around this moment in time in history. To write about what it was like while homosexuality was still considered a mental illness. Still And a crime. So yes, and, and there was all these different kinds of treatments that were being, that homosexuals were being put through. And one such treatment was an aversion therapy treatment that I go into detail about within the book that my protagonist goes through. And... Um, you know, it was a really intense time for anyone who was growing up at that age. To, now, to you be... detail that treatment. Yes. I mean, it's very vivid in the book. It was yeah. almost a little hard for me to read. It, yeah. it just seemed so painful and, and almost a little barbaric. Yes. Um, is that entirely drawn on on what was really happening to young men in, yes. at that time? Yes, it was. And in fact, I, I actually interviewed a few people who went through those treatments Um, And the aversion therapy treatments at that time that were being used were electroshock treatments. And so what was happening is if so if someone identified as a gay boy, 
they would be hooked up to this machine with electrodes attached to their thighs and wrists. They'd see on a screen in front of them a picture of a girl would come up, for instance, and nothing would happen. The next slide would project a picture of a boy, and they'd be immediately be shocked. And what that was supposed to do was that you were supposed to associate the love you felt for another per, a person of the same sex was actually supposed to be transformed into pain. So you didn't actually you were you were apparently being erased of your feelings, right? You were that's how you're being treated. And when I spoke to people who had actually been through this experience, I mean, that was 40, almost 50 years ago now, they're still having sort of sort of PTSD experience from them. Mm -hmm. Like those, those feelings, they've worked through them over the years, but they still feel that pressure of when they have an attraction to someone of the same sex, that immediate jolt kind of goes through them still. It's like a Pavlovian response or something, you know? That's fascinating. Yeah. They're still feeling it. Yeah. And yet this was sort of supposed to cure them yeah. of being gay. That right. part obviously didn't work. I'm no. assuming these these people that you interviewed, they are currently living their life and having same-sex attractions yes. and, and enjoying them. Definitely. Yes, they are. And But they're still feeling that those the pains of those treatments. That's amazing. Yes. You know, one of the most surprising things I thought about your book is that the therapist character who's administering these shock treatments, mm -hmm. she actually comes across as quite sympathetic. I mm. think many authors telling this story mm. might have been inclined to make her just a, a fearsome villain. Yes. Did you think about that that path? I did because, oh, uh, not the fearsome villain path, because I needed her, I wanted her to be sympathetic to Jonathan's journey. And why, why was that important to you? Because I think um, she was based on a couple of people I researched, Dr. Evelyn Hooker. She's named after Dr. Evelyn Hooker, who was one of the pioneers in, in helping homosexuals become, quote unquote, normal in that, at that time. And also, I think, you know, there were many psychiatrists. There was this gay PA is what it was called. And they were gay psychiatrists who were actually fighting to help make this movement happen, make the change happen at that time. And... I wanted to have a character that she's got her own secrets that she deals with, but I wanted her to have a, a journey that was her fighting the idea that she was administering these treatments and knowing that it wasn't right, but just knowing that that's all she was taught to do. Mm -hmm. you she know? was doing her job she and trying job. To, to muddle through. Exactly. It's all she knew, but she knew something inside of her was this was wrong. And mm -hmm. she just... That's why she keeps throwing it over to Jonathan, saying, are you sure this is what you want? You, I will listen to you if this is what you want, but you have to be sure this is what you want. And he's telling her, yes, I want this yeah. treatment. When yeah. you when you interviewed the men who had done this as, as younger men, yeah. did some of them, they were actually welcoming it at some point? They were... Well, a lot, many of them at the time did not want to be wrong, right? They didn't want to be, quote unquote, bad. They wanted to be fixed. They wanted to be normal. They wanted to not be sick anymore. And they thought this was their way out. And that's what Jonathan's journey is. That's what I what's what I got from these people who I interviewed is that they work so hard to just be normal, to fit in, to not be different, to be okay. Um, they did anything that they could to do that. And they pushed through these terrible, terrible, painful treatments just to act like even they were fixed. And they started to convince themselves they were because you know, as you would, it's like if you felt those pains when you were associated any sort of feeling of love mm -hmm. to someone else, you felt like, oh, well, maybe this is actually working because it hurts to feel this way. 
you know. We're talking to James Brandon. He's the author of Ziggy, Stardust, and Me. That's a new young adult fiction novel that's out right now. Um, James, we talked to Sarah Holt, who's the children's and teen specialist at Left Bank Books, mm. and we asked her what drew her to this book, and here's what she said. The writing style is gorgeous. Picking up the first chapter before we've even gotten into the story, before most of our main characters have been introduced, the way the words trip across the page is just so enjoyable, and it makes even the portions of this book that are a little bit harder to read, uh, so they come from a place of pain, it allows those to still be something that, as a reader, you can enjoy the process of taking in. That's Sarah Holt, the children's and teen specialist at Left Bank Books. Your wow. face looks like you're you're really pleased to hear <laughs> that that how much so she beautiful. loves this book. Yeah. I love that. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> that was lovely. Um, among the main characters in this book are a Native American family. Mm-hmm. Now, as a white man yourself, were you mm-hmm. a little nervous about trying to, to paint this family realistically and write about their experiences? Definitely. What kind of research did you do to, to learn about that culture? Tons. <laughs> Tons. <laughs> I mean, I did a ton of research on the entirety of the novel, right? There's so many aspects to it, just not even the Native American issues, but the the treat the gay treatment issues the homosexual treatment issues the 1973 issues everything but specifically with when you are a white author writing outside of your lane it's incredibly important to not just write from your gaze but to actually write from a perspective of that person as much as authentically as you can my character Webb is his name he's the love interest of Jonathan he's not the protagonist so all of this story is told through the lens of Jonathan's perspective as a white young gay male learning to be gay male right or whatever um, so but it's important I think to not write as a from the white gaze but to actually write knowing the people you're talking about and so it was and I first learned about what two-spirit peoples were which is in a very general sense the Native American outlet for LGBTQ peoples that's how they identify the English term two-spirit and I first learned about them about 10 years ago and it was one of those other moments in my life where I was so embarrassed I didn't know about this and being gay and know it, feeling like I knew my the entirety of my community, I realized I didn't. And it kind of burst my own white gay cis male bubble. And I made it a mission to get to know every letter I possibly could in our beautiful LGBTQ spectrum, which there are many letters now, which I love. And within the Two-Spirit community, I joined the Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits. I live in the near the Bay Area in San Francisco these days. And worked with them and went to their first powwow. They hold one of the largest two-spirit powwows in the nation. Over 6,000 people come every year to it. And it's an inclusive experience, so they allow anyone to come that they mm-hmm. want. Um, and I was so moved by it because they're, they bring together the the idea that spirituality and being gay is okay. And pre-colonization, two-spirit peoples were actually revered and honored in their various tribes. And I just thought that was so moving and i wanted a character that would be touch that would burst jonathan's bubble as well that would open up his world to the idea he's the antithesis of what jonathan knows mm-hmm. jonathan and thinks, these apes that are at his, exactly, his high school yes so but i think it's important to honor and respect that community that you're working with and about and 
that's why when I wrote these pe- the web as a character, I definitely immersed myself with the community. I, they helped me write this character, and I give proceeds from the book back to Bates as a as an honor, as a as a way of thanking them for allowing me to tell a small piece of their story. Um, on this book. Now, you had mentioned their um, spirituality. I was also intrigued that um, the devout Christian in the book, Starla, is also a wonderfully sympathetic friend to your protagonist. I think yes. a lot of people might assume in a book like this that the Christian character is going to be the tormentor. Yeah. Um, did you write this very specifically, making the Christian a great friend? I did, because I think, I again, it's like what I do with Dr. Evelyn. I think people would expect a certain thing to come from a character like Dr. Evelyn would be the evil villain as you said, and like a devout Christian might be another evil villain. But I wanted that to be the complete opposite because I don't think that that's true, obviously, for every devout Christian. I've definitely run into those that are that way. And um, I know that I'll have a lot of friends that are devout Christian that have been super supportive of me. And I wanted a character that was similar to uh, girlfriends I had growing up. And I I don't mean like girlfriends I dated, but friends who were girls. Girls that were friends. Yes, (laughs) Um, who helped me um, because we were all basically raised Catholic here in St. Louis. And so we went that trajectory. And but, you know, they helped me see me for who I am along the way. And they believe that, you know, God loves all, basically. And was your family also able to come to that same conclusion? Eventually, yeah, definitely. Um, my mom is one of my biggest fans now. <laughs> I mean, I did. I came out to her late later in life. I didn't come out till I was twenty-one. Okay, so this was after college or, after, or during? Yeah, college? it was during college, and I moved uh, to LA at that point to go to college. So I didn't come out till that point. Um, you know, it was a little hard for her at first, I think, but you know, she definitely came around rather quickly, way quicker than most parents I know were coming around at that time. And she's my biggest supporter now. I mean, we talk, we're best friends and we, she, I've been with, living with my partner for over nine years and she's a big part of our family in that way. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. And most of my, fa- I mean, all my family I'm out to, we just, you know, we've never really talked about it necessarily, but yeah. we're about to tomorrow night at Left Bank Books, I guess. So <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, fun. you're writing about this all very openly now. But yeah. even before this, before you became a novelist, um, you had an experience where any family member that was paying attention to what you were up to, they had to have known you were gay. And that yes. is that you were touring in this production of a Terrence McMal- McNally play. Tell us just a little bit about this play. Yeah. So the play itself, um, so uh, the play is Terrence McNally's Corpus Christi, which is in a very quick nutshell, the story of of Jesus Christ from nativity to crucifixion, but a a modern retelling told through the lens of a young gay man growing up in Corpus Christi, Texas. What this play did is transformed all of our lives. It was meant to be six performances. It ended up touring for 10 years all around the world. 10 years? 10 and years. you were playing the same part the and whole time? And I was playing the character of Jesus uh, all the time, the whole I guess time. I can see why that wouldn't get old. You get to play <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, people are kissing your feet every show. So how could that could be bad? But um, uh, so, but the story, what it ended up doing is allowed LGBTQ peoples who had been ousted from their faith back to their table of faith because they were being told a story they grew up learning to them through their lens. And they finally felt like they belonged again. And I feel like this is the story that a lot of us grew up, I grew up Catholic and I was told over and over I was a sinner and I just felt like I didn't belong, even though I love the story of Jesus and all the parables and just the pomp and circumstance behind it. I loved it. 
Um, but I was told I didn't belong there, so I ran away from it. And this show actually allowed me back into a feeling of faith that I never had before. I had lost along the way. And so, yeah, that toured for 10 years and it kind of catapulted me in my journey. So do you currently consider yourself a Christian? Uh, I would say I consider myself spiritual. Yeah, I don't know if I would give it a denomination necessarily. But but you believe in God? I do. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And I believe in Buddha. And I believe, you know, so, but I definitely believe in um, the teachings I grew up learning. I have learned to find a new connection to and a new love for. Yes. Um, we've got one more piece of audio from Sarah Sarah Holt at Left Bank Books, and she notes how the story and the themes in this book remain relevant for young people today. One of the most unfortunate resonances is that we are still in a position where not every teen feels safe coming out as themselves. And hopefully through this book, they can find a kindred spirit in one or more of these characters and uh, see a way towards further acceptance. James Brandon, just time for one more quick question. What is your hope for this book? That, that's my hope. I mean, that really is my hope. I, I, when I do my school presentations, I always end it with be you, because I think the more we can embrace our differences, the more we can give back to the fullest of our potential back to the world. And that's, that's the importance of what I think this book is about, to be you and embrace that part of you. James Brandon, thank you so much for joining thank us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's my honor. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.